Good morning. My name is Jason Simon. I'm the minister to students here at University Baptist Church. Um, if you've been around our church for more than a year or so, um, I want to clear something up. It's probably a little confusing to you that I'm up here right now because you're probably thinking, like, did you miss Christmas? Um, typically, I'm up here the Sunday after Christmas. That's kind of slated as the student ministry Sunday, so I want you to know you have not missed Christmas. Uh, although it's quickly approaching, we're Christmas musicking in my house, much to the chagrin of my wife. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, but no, you haven't missed Christmas. Um, I get to be here. It's a joy for me to be here today. Um, and I love Pastor Jeremiah. I'm grateful for the opportunity to come here and stand before you all. As much as I love him, I do want to clear a couple things up with his introduction. Uh, he mentioned that I work with high school students. My high school students, I see y'all on your phones back there. Mm-hmm. Um, I love working with you guys. I absolutely work with our high school students. I'm the minister to students. So I get to, uh, <laughs> hey, <laughs> I get to do that. Uh, and it's one of the great joys. But our youth ministry is not just high school students, all right? It's also middle school students. He mentioned high school, and I love my high school students, but I got to call out, if you're in middle school and you're in here this morning, bravo to you for getting up this morning. Thanks for being here. Um, we recently just had a little friendly competition between our middle school and high school to see who could collect the most donations, and our middle schoolers actually just came through and brought a ton of stuff. So uh, I want to take a moment and call out our middle schoolers and say, we see you guys. We know you're in the throes of middle school, but we love you, and I love working with you, and I'm super uh, grateful to be able to do that. And then, like he said, I also work with our college students. So uh, this Sunday, me being up here, being able to preach this Sunday is pretty exciting for me because, like I said, I typically do the Sunday after Christmas, which is great, and I love that. Um, but there's a few things about the Sunday after Christmas. One is that most students are generally traveling on that Sunday, so I don't, they don't actually get to see me in nice clothes. So here I have them. I wear them sometimes. Um, but also, pretty much a good chunk, I'd say probably 85 or 90% of our college students go back home for Christmas, which is amazing, and we're glad they have loving homes to go back to. Um, but it's, a, it's especially um, important and exciting for me to be up here today in front of all the students, but also the whole church body, because Really, I kind of serve as the church body's representative to students, and that's a privilege for me. It's an honor for me, not just for me, but for my family. We love it. So I just want to take a moment. Um, I'll give you all some updates on those ministries a little bit later, but I just want to say thanks. Thank you so much for uh, your confidence in me, your confidence in our students. I love serving at a church that prioritizes students. We're not a church that says, you know, hey, we're just prepping you for the future. We do that. We do a lot of prep for the future. But kind of our keystone thing about student ministry here at UBC is we believe students are the church. They're not just the church of tomorrow. They are the church, period. They have the same spirit of God that we have in us. And so to serve in a church that supports them, that gives them opportunities to lean into those gifts and those calls, uh, and not just lean in, but develop those, is um, something that has been a great joy and honestly a huge privilege in my life. So thank you, church, for the way you support students. Students, thank y'all for being here so early on a Sunday morning. Um, there should be extra bagels in the youth area if you're tired. Go grab a bagel um, and hang with me. Okay, it's not Christmas. Happy to be up here. We're in parables, okay? Also, Jeremiah's ears are much, much smaller than mine. I don't know if y'all have ever noticed that, but hang tight with me with the microphone. We're going to make it work. Um, we're talking about parables, really the power of story. That, that's what we're walking through right now. And it says in John that, that Jesus Christ is the Word. And then when we read uh, the Gospels, we see that the Word incarnates and takes on flesh and then steps into the world and lives this amazing life. And Jesus led an incredible ministry. It's, it feels almost disambiguous to say that it's, it's a, it was a ministry because ministry kind of implies programs and things like that. And Jesus wasn't just establishing programs, right? He was turning entire power dynamics upside down. Like he was bringing a whole new way of doing life into the world. And as he did that, he left a bunch of teachings behind. And praise God that the Holy Spirit convicted some people to write those down so that we can come and study them. We can be in the Word with them. We can look at them um, and, and allow them to speak into our lives. Because what Scripture says is that it's living and active. So I hope that we understand when we come here in church or in your quiet time in the mornings or as you listen to your Bible on your walk to class or whatever, like, we're not just reading stories. These are stories, but this word is alive and active. And God says it will cut deep into our hearts. And that's amazing. So that's where we come to this morning. We're going to be in the book of Luke, chapter 18. If you have uh, your Bible with you, we're going to be in Luke 18. 
we're going to start in verse 1. And as you uh, flip there, I'd just like to take a moment and pray over this time. So, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that it, it calls us uh, deeper than we could ever imagine, God. I thank you that it shapes us and molds us, that it's living and active. I thank you for this time this morning to celebrate with this congregation, to, to worship you in celebration, and to come before you um, seeking your face, Father. So open our eyes to see you in our midst this morning, God. Open our hearts to feel you ever so close to us, Lord. And thank you so much for this time, and thank you for your goodness towards us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so Luke 18 follows Luke chapter 17, and it's often taught kind of by itself, but really the beginning of Luke 18 references uh, the end of Luke 17. So what you find at the end of Luke chapter 17 is um, Jesus teaching on the kingdom of God. He, he talks about the coming of the Son of Man, and he says that the Son of Man is coming, and, and you don't know the day or the hour. But kind of the point there is, is the kingdom is coming. And that leads us into Luke 18. So we're going to start. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 for us. Luke 18. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with this plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps coming and bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice, and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? One of the main points of this passage is a teaching on justice. And so that's where we're going to start. We're just going to jump in. Um, this is the passage that Jeremiah asked me to teach on. It's a passage of Scripture that, that I enjoy. But um, to be quite honest with you all, I was not very excited to, to come up and teach on this passage. Um, it's one that I like personally wrestling with, but it's one that comes with a lot, of, uh, a lot of charge around it right now because of this word that we see quite frequently in here, justice. Justice. Will you grant me justice? I will grant her justice. Will not God bring justice? This, this constant theme of justice. Now, this word justice here it's, it can be translated vindication or deliverance, or really it can be, be translated like avenging. Will not God avenge me? Okay? Justice is a huge buzzword right now, though. It's, it's, it probably, if you have been watching the news at all or just been active, if you have social media, um, the word justice probably brings about all kinds of um, emotions or thoughts about what that means. And I guarantee you in a room this big and with those of you watching online, we're all sitting in different places with what the word justice actually means. Um, when, when I thought about it, I was like, well, when I think of justice, what, what comes to mind? Well, the first thing is social justice. Like, that was the first word that came to mind, which has its own huge like, genre of subcategories that you could fit just under social justice. Um, there's racial justice. There's political justice. You start thinking about political justice. You start thinking about policing and police reform and government mandates. And then you start thinking about politics. And then you start thinking about military. And this is, how, this is what my brain does 24 hours a day. So letting you guys in here to see why it was hard for me to, to be asked to teach on justice. Because we're all sitting in different places with it. Most of us are sitting in a 21st century place with it. Which is good. That's where we live. And we need to take note of that. Um, but what we're talking about here in Scripture, which justice from God is where all justice stems from, but we're talking about the justice of God here. And so I want us to make sure that we're sitting in kind of that biblical understanding. So if you're in a sociology course, again, I work with a lot of college students. A lot of you went through college. Um, if you've taken sociology, um, the definition of justice that you might get there is, um, I took this from an old sociology textbook I had. 
because I keep stuff like that. Justice is action in accordance with the requirements of some law. Whether these rules are grounded in human consensus or societal norms, they are supposed to ensure that all members of a society receive fair treatment. Justice is action in accordance with the requirements of some law, hoping that all members of a society, whether through um, legislation or just social norms, it's supposed to ensure that all members of a society receive fair treatment. That's a sociological definition of justice, okay? But we're talking here about biblical justice. We're talking about God's vengeance is more literally how that word can be translated, which also probably makes some of us sit in kind of a weird space because that's also a charged word. Um, here's the foundation I want to lay right here. The justice we're talking about is grounded not in the law of man right now. This is justice grounded in the law of God. This is justice before there was a law of man, right? Because God, in this Trinitarian perfect communion of love, that's where all of these right things like justice stem from. Kind of that, that perfect place of communion is where this is coming from. And that will be kind of cleared up as we get into this teaching a little bit. If we look at the illustration, I think it'll make a little bit more sense, okay? So, how Jesus chooses to start his illustration here is about a widow. Um, and this is a, this is not a, this is a parable, so he's not telling about something that actually happened, although it's not hard for us to believe something like this would actually happen, but he's telling a story. So all of these players in this story he chose very intentionally, okay? The first one is a widow. Uh, a widow is experiencing injustice. It's probably quite hard for us to imagine right now a woman could experience injustice, Right? A woman experiencing injustice, but not just a woman, a widow. And if you know anything about um, historic, uh, the way that faith came up in history, to be a widow in this society meant you were nearly at the bottom of the rung of society. And what we need to understand is that this woman is advocating for herself. It's this widow coming to the judge, this widow coming to the judge. It says she goes over and over. So what Jesus is saying there is that she doesn't have anyone to advocate for her. It is this woman and this woman alone in this lowest occupiable status, and she is basically helpless. Does she still deserve justice? That's a question to wrestle with. Though she's at this lowest rung, should she still get what's owed to her? The unjust judge here, it's interesting as Jesus starts talking about the judge, there's no question whether this woman deserves justice. Like if you read those verses kind of uh, there in the middle, the judge is not wrestling with what decision to make. It's not like he's unsure what this woman is due. It says that he knows she's due justice. And in Second Chronicles, it kind of talks about the role of judges in, in situations like this. And this judge in a civil, uh, a civil thing like this would have had, his word would have been the law. Like whatever he said, he could have just in one word delivered whatever justice this woman was due. We don't know what happened to her. We don't know what wrong had been done. But there's no question about it here. Something had been done where she deserved justice and this judge by a word could have given it to her. And he doesn't. So what you have there is an abuse of power. And again, we probably can't fathom that in our day and age, abuse of power. But um, clearly, there's something unjust happening here. An abuse by someone, an unjustified abuse of power. But he acts. So Jesus has given you that this is a widow and this judge is unjust, and he's given you those two things. So you kind of are in this place at the beginning where you're like, this woman's helpless. Like, there can be no good to come from this. But then in, like, kind of an interesting turn of events, you see the judge acts. Like, he changes his mind. He grants her justice. And it's so interesting how he does that or why he does that. Look at verse 4 again. It says, For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care about men, Yet because this woman keeps bothering me, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. What brought action for her was her persistence. It was her continued showing up. But 
I hope we understand the judge is still, he's acting rightly, but he's acting with the wrong intention. It's not like her persistent coming broke him down. He was like, man, this woman really deserves this. No, it was man. This woman won't leave me alone. And as I, as I studied this passage, this phrase here, um, some of your Bibles, if you're using a different translation, they probably translate verse 5 differently. The end of my verse 5 says, so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. That can be directly translated so that she doesn't blacken my eye. Now, I don't think this woman was literally going to punch this judge in the face. I don't know her. Maybe she was. But what's implied there is to have a blackened eye is shame. That's shameful. This woman is going to wear me out. It's starting to tarnish my reputation that this woman keeps coming to me. People are starting to take notice that I'm not doing anything, so I'm going to do something. So does he grant her justice? Well, yeah, but look at his motives. They are completely selfish. He's acting only because it has started affecting him. Putting a different way, he didn't feel called to act until he perceived that this situation was directly going to affect him. And Jesus is very explicit here that that is unjust. That is not justice. A phrase Jeremiah uses, which I love, if you're visiting today, when I say Jeremiah, he's our, our pastor, he's the one who made that video. He says, radical, unyielding love for the neighbor. That's what we're called to give, radical, unyielding love for the neighbor. Not here, though. That's not what's happening here in this story. This is not radical, unyielding love. And I just wonder, in my own life, how many times has justice gone undelivered? Because I had this stance of, well, that doesn't affect me. And until that affects me, until that gets in my arena, I have enough to say grace over. Jesus says this is unjust. He's saying, don't be this judge. Don't let your own interests or motivations call you to action. Because that doesn't fit the narrative of his teachings. And he's also making a point that God is not this just judge. When, he, when he's laying out who this judge is, he does that really intentionally to say, how much more will God not move for you, for his chosen ones, the one he hears? How much more will he not stand in? If shame can motivate a man, how much more will God not come to the aid of his children? I want us to be really clear. God is not the author of injustice. And he doesn't turn a blind eye to it. But he does ask us to bring it to him. The judge's motivation here are self-interest and shame. God's are love and righteousness. Which is why this teaching isn't ultimately about justice. We talk about it, and that's what we hang on here. And that's what, again, that's, that's the hot button issue right now. I should preach just on that first, just on that word, justice, for the next I don't know, 50, 60, 75 minutes or so, however long you guys can hang. Um, I'm not going to do that because this teaching isn't actually solely about justice. It's about justice, but it's about prayer. It's very explicit in verse 1. Luke says, almost like he doesn't want us to miss it, then Jesus told his disciples this parable to show them that they should always pray and never give up that they should never give up, okay? I want to set a scene for you. You just woke up. You're going on your day. I don't know where you're going. Maybe you're going to school. Maybe you're going to work. Maybe you're getting children together, and then something happens that's not great. It's catastrophic. You're in college. You forgot. It's exam day. Like, you show up. You're just like, you got your coffee. You're like bumping into class, and everyone's just like sitting like this, and you're like, something's wrong. And then you realize... It's exam day, and you totally forgot, and you're totally unprepared. That's not good, right? Or you're going, and you pull into school, and you're only five minutes late dropping your kids off, and you're like, hey, that's a record for us. Like, that's pretty awesome. And as you're taking them into school, one of them is like, mommy, where are my shoes? I'm just, I'm just an example. I haven't been there or anything. Um, 
and you're like, wow, this is not good. This is not awesome, right? Or maybe it's something more serious. Maybe you wake up to a text that you didn't expect or a phone call that makes your heart skip because no one calls on the phone anymore unless something bad's going on. And you get some news, something happens, but it's out of your hands. What do we say there? What do we say so often? We say, ah, all we can do now is pray about it. I will tell y'all that there's not many things, like I'm pretty, like I have a lot of ups emotionally, like I like to emotionally, I get pumped up about things, right? I tend to stay pretty flat. Whenever someone says there's, n- there's nothing else we can do, all we can do is pray, something happens deep in here, and I've learned it from my wife. If you've met my wife, she's the sweetest person on earth. If you thought you were the sweetest person on earth, you're probably real close, I'm not going to lie, but she is the sweetest. She's amazing. Her name's Ashley. She's fantastic. Um, I hope she's in here. Um, actually, I don't, because uh, what, what I've, one thing I've learned from her, though, that I didn't do growing up because my mom had a swift reach on the backhand. Mom, if you're watching this, I love you too. It's okay. Um, my wife can roll her eyes with the best of them. Like, she has this eye roll that you feel deep in your spirit. You don't even have to be able to see her eyes to know that she has just rolled them so hard, she's staring at you in the back of her head and then rolling her eyes again. It's really severe. It's usually just towards me. She doesn't do it towards the general public. Um, I like to antagonize her. That's kind of my role as a husband, I think. And I've gotten a share of eye rolls or two in my day. The phrase, all we can do now is pray, is one of those things that just makes me stop. And it gives me that pause where I'm just like, oh, all we can do now is go to the throne of God in heaven. Shoot. We're out of options. I just think if we were to say that, like if an unbeliever's in the room and like something bad has happened and we've done all we can do and they hear us say, man, all we can do now is pray. And they're like, what's prayer? You're like, oh, well, it's where we talk to God in heaven. You're going to be like, why, why don't we start there? Like, you talk to God, you have God on speed dial, and we've been trying to do this ourselves, and you could have been talking to him about it? That's how I feel about it. Prayer is never, ever, it's never a last resort. Because we're sitting before God in heaven. And the kind of prayer we're talking about here is persistent prayer. It's persistent, it's repeated, it's over and over. It's the kind of prayer we don't like to do. We like to say our grace over it, and God is in your hands. This is persistent prayer, and it's, the prayer reference here is actually not prayer of everyday things. This isn't prayer for your day-to-day. It's talk to God about everything. Please talk to him about everything because he cares. But the prayer we're talking about here is in light of justice. It's when you get that feeling in your spirit that, God, this is wrong. Why is this happening? Is there anything wrong in the world right now? Anything wrong in your world, just your specific world, your kind of orbit of things that go on around you? Just take stock of that for a minute. What's going on in your world that's just wrong? It's just not right. Or what about in the church? There are things in the church that are going wrong. The world at large. It's the things that that ground us in the present reality, which we don't want to be grounded in because they're not good. It's wanting to sit before the throne of God and just say, why? What is happening here? We get so worried in prayer, I often find, that we have to make excuses for God. Like we pray about things, but then we give God an out. Like, God, like, this is happening, and I wish it wouldn't, but if you don't move, it's okay. Like, it's, it's totally fine. Or worse, we just don't talk to him about them because we think he's got bigger things going on. Or we think whatever things we're experiencing in our world that feels so heavy to us, man, in light of God, he's got way bigger things going on. This is nothing. Don't, don't sell God that short to not care about the deep, intimate details of your lives. And don't think he wants to be disinvolved in the world. If you've been around church, you're probably thinking, ah, we're about to get another lesson on prayer. 
I would push back on that a little bit and say, how many lessons on prayer have you actually had? When I talk to people about their faith, which is one of my favorite things I get to do in my job, uh, we'll sit down and I'll ask, hey, how's your faith? Which is like one of the most vague questions a pastor could ask. I know it's super vague. I ask it vague intentionally because I love to see what that brings up in people. 99 times out of 100, there are two responses. They come together. I get a response on how much Bible reading I'm doing or not doing and how much I'm praying or not praying. And then we'll start talking about prayer. And very often it comes up, well, I was actually never taught how to pray. It's like one of those things that we just feel like as believers we should know how to do. Like, oh, you're a believer, you pray. How often? Uh, probably not enough. When things are bad, okay. Over my food, sure. But we actually, many of us haven't been taught how to pray. Which I think is fascinating, because if you look at the people who were closest to Jesus the people who walked with him daily. They could have asked him anything. The gospel writers could have recorded anything. John says if everything was recorded that Jesus did, the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. The things that they put in here are so specific for us. God ordained them for us. And the disciples had Jesus' ear, and they could ask him anything, and they said, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray like you do. They weren't afraid of, we should already know how to do this. We've been Jewish this long. We've been practicing it this way. We go to the synagogues, and we should, we should, we should. It wasn't a thing. Teach us to pray. Your life is different. I want us to be beginners today when we talk about prayer. I want us to think, what is it really? What is the purpose of it? Where, what does it serve? And this is not... I'm not teaching this because I also work with students and we teach a lot of foundational stuff. I'm teaching it because as believers, we've got to keep in mind the foundations of what we believe and the practices that we're called to. Jesus, your prayer is different. John Ortberg has this fascinating quote. He says, I would challenge us that we'll never be anything but beginners for all of our lives. We're so often afraid of, especially in church, when we feel like we have to have it all together and talking to church people, and we feel like we've got to say all the right things. We're, we're afraid to seem like a beginner. And the disciples have been walking with Jesus, and they said, teach us to pray. Reteach everything we've learned, because what you're doing is different. You're shaped by it. It's different for you. Prayer is an active relationship with a living person. An active relationship with a living person. It's to be in communication with the divine, like we said just a little bit ago. To pray is to be changed, because anytime in Scripture someone stood before God, they left changed. That's what prayer is. Prayer is going to God in heaven. We're just broken vessels, but we get to carry his spirit in us. So like all the spiritual disciplines, prayer is designed, it's given to awaken us to this reality that God is with us. That God is with us. That's so foundational. I know it's foundational, but it literally changes everything. The God who spoke all of this from nothing into everything. We're talking about Genesis right now and college, so I'm, I'm like hooked on Genesis. And the fact that God's words brought all of this from nothing. And then his breath filled it with life and abundance and flourishing, and he sent it out on mission. That God, the spirit that gave us life, whose breath is in us, dwells within us. Prayer, prayer is not something that you just, you just throw something out into the universe and hope it's heard. Jesus would stop and pray. We're to stop and pray because when we do, it reminds us God is with me. A lot of times we pray, God, just, just, just be here. Like, come and, and, and fill this place. I would say that God has said, I've given my spirit to you. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in your hearts. Prayer is pausing and reminding yourself, God is with me. 
I don't need to pray that he would be any closer. He cannot be any closer. If you're a believer, you have the Spirit of God within you. Prayer is pausing and reminding yourself of that. So what else is there? Right? Like if that's it, if prayer is reminding yourself that God's with you, then it should be this like euphoric moment and you pray and like when you're done praying, you're just like, everything's better. Left it all beside, everything's changed. Right? And then you walk out of here and you're walking to your dorm or you're going back home. And then like the real world hits you where there's not stained glass and beautiful lights and the sound of people singing. And the real world settles in. You're like, man, I don't know that anything actually changed. Like, why, why are we even having to do this Buckner fundraiser that April was talking about, this, this sports day where we're trying to raise money? God, why are we even doing that? Why is it necessary? Why should there be a foster care crisis where we have to do this? Why have I not had these prayers answered for all these years? Like, it's easy for me to stand up in here and say, God is with you and everything's great. But we've got to take note that this is, you know, an hour and a half or longer, depending how long you guys can hang out. I'm on page five of, like, 43. Um, but it's just a brief moment in your whole week. And I know when you leave here, because I am a real human too, that the world just slams back into you. Your family troubles, your trouble at work, the injustices you've been dealt. Maybe you feel the injustices of the world really heavy right now. How long will the, the ghosts of my past haunt me? Like, can we not just move on from this? Have I not dealt with this enough? Have I not given my penance for this? How long do I have to carry this heaviness? And then what about revenge? Like, we're talking about justice. So again, we can talk about those soft prayers where you're like, God, my heart hurts about this. But what about, like, the fire in our hearts? Like, the God, this, are you going to avenge this? Because this is not right. Not just that I'm sad about this, but that we got to make this better. And if you don't do it, I'm just going to have to do it. Like, someone's got to do it. The wrongs that I've been done, I can't carry anymore. I cannot carry any more weight of what's been done to me or to my family. And if you're not going to move, I'm just going to have to move. Like those things that build fire in you. God, are you going to avenge these? Prayer is the moment to sit with God in those things. There's this organization, um, it's called Civil Righteousness, and J.T. Thomas uh, leads this organization, and his teachings are fascinating. Um, he had this quote that I heard yesterday that I wasn't planning on including until last night, and I just felt like I needed to. And it says here, he's talking about when you're, he's talking about injustice. This is a guy that stands in protest, that feels the weight of people around him. Um, this is a black man in America in 2020, 2021, and he's wrestling with all these things with um, race and politics and how the people around him are reacting to these things, and he's just got a good eye on it. And he says, righteous indignation bears the fruit of righteousness, the fruits of the Spirit. If your frustration with injustice is leading to fruits that are not of the Spirit, your indignation is not righteous. It isn't spirit, it's flesh. Righteous indignation bears the fruit of of righteousness. When we talk about injustice in church, it's easy to leave feeling like, oh, everything, God's going to make everything better one day, so I should be happy about it. I, I should be okay now. I should be able to let that go. But then you still have that like weight in your chest that you carry around. Maybe you try not to acknowledge it. Or maybe you just think that God doesn't care about it. God cares so deeply. God despises injustice. But he despises this, the spirit of it, not the person doing it. And that's important for us to remember is that the things of the world that are broken, Ephesians 6 lays this out really well. Your fight is not against flesh and blood, it says. It's against the powers and the rulers, the principalities, the authorities of this dark world. The spirit of brokenness that leads to injustice is something we should rage against. But we've got to be raging in a way that's biblical, in a way that bears the fruit of righteousness. 
Because that's what Jesus did. We can talk about injustice because God lived it. That's the unique thing about the Christian faith is that we have a God who stepped into injustice for us. Rejected by his own creation. Put aside. Hung on a cross. All of these terrible things that happened to him. He felt them for us. He felt them before us. And he stepped into them to carry them. The prayer we're talking about here is prayer that acknowledges those things brings them to the Lord. If you don't know how to do that, like if you have an unsettled spirit with the things in your life or the things going on in the world and you're not sure where to take that, start in Psalms 1 and just read through. The way the psalmists deal with anger, often about injustice, is absolutely fascinating. They talk to God about it. And they often start by being just brutally honest. God, where are you? Do you not see this? How long will you hide your face from me? Do you build a theology around that? Well, no, God's not hiding his face from you. But if you don't acknowledge what's really going on internally, you cannot grow from there. You're going to be stuck in that forever. You have to acknowledge what you're feeling before God because those same psalms end with, but God, your name is to be praised. You will come and avenge your children. You will cast off wickedness forever. there's 150 or so of them. Over and over, these psalmists keep bringing it to God. I want to share a couple stories with y'all. Um, in Arlington a few years back, there was this small group of individuals that met every week, and they just prayed. Every week, they prayed. They prayed that God would move in the city. There was hunger. There were children without families. There was crime poverty, people that don't know Jesus, and they just prayed for weeks and weeks and weeks. We have uh, at our church a chapel right next door. Literally, if you go out these doors and you turn left, it's the other set of wooden doors before you hit the end of the road. Um, we have some people, some college students who, and, and leaders who said, you know what, we want to be a place of prayer. So let's open up the chapel. So every day, our chapel's open, 7 to 8, Monday through Friday. If you're free in that time and you need a space to come pray, it's there. If you're not free in that time, but you love that and you think, man, if we could grow that, that'd be awesome, come talk to us. John, I'm sorry, if you're here, I know that's, there's building things with that and people in the building, but we want to be, if nothing else, a house of prayer. I get an email once a month from these ladies in our church that meet and pray. And they say, hey, what can we pray for you for? What can we pray for our church for? What can we pray for our ministries for? Every Wednesday night, Jeremiah gets on his little Facebook and on the church Facebook and does a prayer meeting. Every Wednesday night. We started doing that on Facebook because more people were able to join it. They couldn't get up here in time, so he's just been doing it there. And it's been fruitful because people are coming together and they're praying. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. And that's what the end of chapter 17 lays out. So really the beginning, in the first verse of chapter 18, you could read it like this. Because the Son of Man is coming, and you don't know when he's coming, and you don't know how, you should always keep on praying, and you should never give up. Those people in Arlington that met and prayed in the morning, they met for seven years praying before anything materialized out of that. But when it did, their hearts were ready, their lives were ready to seize the moment. That was 30 years ago, 33-ish years ago. That birthed the organization where I grew a ton in my faith before coming here, which is called Mission Arlington. This place where I saw hundreds of families come through every single day, having no food, just being let go, having their lights turned off, no furniture, their kids were going to be taken away by CPS because they didn't have a bed, just showing up and saying, just help us. This was a place where we didn't send out flyers, we didn't ask for donations, we didn't solicit anything. I've seen a mother walk in a door weeping because CPS was going to take her child if she didn't have a bed, 
and literally watched a truck, I'm not exaggerating, watched a truck drive through the parking lot with a crib in the back. And they said, you know what, we don't need this anymore. We're cleaning out our garage. We figure if you guys can take it, someone else can use it. And it didn't even hit the ground. It went straight from the back of a truck to the back of a car. And that mother who's weeping doesn't just get a crib. She gets to hear the gospel. She gets to say, man, thank you guys so much. What do I owe you? And we're like, we didn't buy this crib. You don't owe us anything. We didn't even know it was coming. We just pray that God would meet needs, and he shows up, and we just shuffle things around all day long. We just try to move his things from one person to the next. This is God doing this. This is his goodness for you. I've seen grown people hear the Christmas story while they're getting their kids free Christmas presents and leave and come back in. Some of you heard me tell this story. This lady left and came back in, and we were like, ma'am, I'm sorry, you can't get any more gifts. You've already gone through. She was like, gifts? I don't need no more gifts. I want to hear that story again. This woman was in her 50s and had never heard the Christmas story. And it captivated her heart. Lived in the Metroplex her whole life. This isn't someone from a third world country. This is someone from your neighborhood. Seven years of prayer, and honestly, a lifetime before, laid the foundations for that. These college students who are meeting and praying and praying and praying, their burden, one of the most hostile places to share the gospel is right across the street. And we love TCU. Like, I absolutely love TCU. But TCU, TCC, UNT, American college campuses are extremely hostile towards the gospel, or at, at the best, or they're indifferent to it. It's not an easy place. And it's not like that cool of a thing if you're a college student and you're talking to someone, you're having a good conversation after class, and you're like, so, I go to church. And they're like, so, I'm leaving. It's not easy, but we have college students who are burdened that they're surrounded by people who don't know the love of Christ. There's this epidemic of loneliness on our campuses because kids are walking around and they have no clue how deeply loved they are. So these students are meeting and they're praying. And they're praying and they're praying. And just this semester, three of your college students have led other college-age students to Christ. Just this semester. That foundation is laid in prayer. And it blows me away. Prayer calls us to action. We feel like prayer's in action. I know you feel like that because I felt like that. I'm like in a room and I'm like, God, what are we doing? But prayer is not in action. Prayer is in action. Going before the throne of God. There's no other way to go about it because he hears your cries and he answers in his own timing and I know that's different than ours. But we trust scripture where it says his timing is good. We trust where it says he hears us and he deeply, deeply, deeply cares about us. That's the question. Do you believe that? Do we believe that he cares? Do we believe that he really cares? that he wants to be involved in our day-to-day? Or do we not believe it? Injustice is a cup God doesn't desire any of us to drink from. It's not from him. But he knows that we're going to because he knows the state of this world. And so what did he do? He stepped down into it. These, These people that rejected him, he came to them despised and rejected, beaten and abandoned. The only one who's ever truly unworthy of injustice stepped into it purposefully for us. A conversation on injustice has to include the name of Christ, which is why this parable is not about injustice, but it's about deliverance. And it's about hope. And it's about hope that he hears, that he cares, that he's going to move. Our theme this year has been our eyes fixed on him from Hebrews. I stood up here months and months ago talking about keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. Jeremiah was supposed to give that sermon and couldn't because of some terrible loss in his family. And he said, 
I still need you to preach on this. I know you've got two days to prepare a sermon. This is the word our church needs to hear. We're going to go through this year with our eyes fixed on Jesus. Because it changes things. If you desire judgment, don't worry, it'll come. I know some of you have been done wrongs that I could never stand up here and imagine. God knows that too. And he promises justice. He, is, he promises to judge our deeds. We'll all stand before him and give account. So while in some places of our hearts that makes us leap that someone's going to have to give account for what they've done to us, let us not stand here and worship justice. Let us worship God, who's not just a God of justice, but also mercy and grace. Because the justice we deserve for our brokenness, how it says in Romans, the wages of sin is death. What we all deserve he took on himself. He gave us mercy. It's Jesus, the king of all eternity, kneeling on a dirty floor with a wet rag in his hands and cleaning the feet of his disciples that are about to run away from him in his moment of greatest need. It's grace. Justice will come, but let us be people who also desire to see God's goodness flood the world. He says, those who have been forgiven much, forgive much. Guys, we have to trust that his timing is greater. That's not easy. We have to trust that his ways are higher. That's not easy. That's why we pray. Because when we pray, we sit before him and we leave changed. When you encounter the living God, you leave changed. He ends, and I'm going to end here with this call in the last verse, which seems kind of random. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Of course there's injustice. Don't be surprised by injustice. And if you're surprised by injustice, you've been taught a false gospel, and I'm sorry. Because what the gospel says is that the world is broken. That we're deeply broken. Expect injustice. Expect darkness. That's why he's made us a light. And that's the final call here, church. He says, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. He doesn't promise it's going to be easy. He absolutely promises it's going to be worth it. Will the Son of Man find faith on earth? What are we doing with this time? Has, has the weight of injustice caused us to give up? Or has it lit a fire under us? Has it given us despair? Or has it given us purpose? When the list of injustices against us piles up, are we going to sink into bitterness and anger and blame shifting? Or are we going to, in prayer, ask God to change our hearts, to turn our frustrations into loving kindness? to turn our hate into open doors for action, to turn our rage into unyielding love for our neighbor. When we hear of foster care kids in crisis, which if you've been here for more than like two weeks, you've heard about it at least twice. We talk about it a lot. Are we going to let that repeated conversation lead us to numbness and inaction that doesn't affect my bubble? I'm going to stay out of it. Or are we going to host a sports day and invite a bunch of teenagers to come and get crazy messy and loud and rowdy and bring a donation so that we can give money to this organization which shouldn't even exist. We know it shouldn't exist. Foster care is not how the world should function, but it does. You can be frustrated and indignant about it, or you can come and you can say, you know what, we're going to try to provide at least one safe night for a kid who doesn't have a home tonight. We've got to decide which church we're going to be. And you guys are doing so good. I love being a part of it. When Christ returns, will he find us saying, this doesn't concern me, I'm going to stay out of it? Or will he find us with our hands to the plow, lifting one another up and fighting for the most vulnerable among us, fighting for one another? I pray that he finds us exhausted from work. Exhausted, but with our eyes fixed on him. I'm going to pray for us.
as I pray, I want you to just take a moment where you're sitting and allow God to search your heart. If you have injustices that have been done to you that you've been carrying around, take a moment and lament those things to God. Don't hide them from him. He already knows. Or if there are things in the world that weigh extra heavy on you, this is a moment to be honest with him about them. We need to be honest about them. We need to lament them so that we can be moved to hope because that's what we're called to as a church. For some of you, maybe that's just a renewed hope. You believe in God, but you've been weighed down by the troubles of this world. Allow him to renew your hope. Ask him to. Challenge him to. Commit to seeking him this week for greater clarity. In scripture and community, however you need to, reach out to the staff. Ask him to renew your hope. Some of you don't know that hope in the first place. Maybe you, you come in here and you feel hopeless. And you want to know who this Jesus is that delivers this kind of hope that we would talk about. And you're starting to think, maybe there's actually some good news. I promise you there is. And though the road before us is long, we walk it together, we walk it in hope, we walk it in power that's not our own, where you feel powerless to lean into the causes of the world or the brokenness in your life. It's not your own power that you lean in, it's Christ. It's the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead that calls us forth every single day. God, help us be bold about this. Help us to have this hope that is unshakable, God. I pray that we're a church that, if known by nothing else, God, we are known as a people of prayer, that we trust that prayer is not inaction, that prayer is standing before your throne, that you hear, that you care, that you love. And as we take this song, this final song to respond this morning, God, I pray this isn't just about this moment, but that it calls us forth into the week into the world, into our families, God, into maybe the depths of our own souls to allow you to speak your life, to allow you to reframe the justice that we desire, God, and to trust that you'll bring it. And like all things, God, that you bring it in love.